How are real-world evidences generated, collected, and used for health economics assessment? What are some biostatistics-related roles within life science consulting? And how will life science consulting industry potentially evolve in the future? Tim Disher is here to answer all these questions for you. Dr. Tim Disher obtained his PhD degree in nursing from Dalhousie University, working on economic evaluation of neonatal health technologies. He is now a registered nurse and serves as a senior director of biostatistics at Aversana. His expertise includes developing and critiquing models from both statistical and clinical point of view. He's also interested in the latest tech developments and believes that they can eventually assist and change the life science consultancy workflow. Let's dive into this episode to see what Tim shared with us. Thank you, Tim, for uh, coming to our biostatistics podcast, and oh, it's really great to have you with us here. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Um, let's get started by uh, you telling us a bit about your background and how you became interested in biostatistics. Uh, yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm a nurse. Uh, I call myself a nurse scientist, I guess, or a decision scientist. Um, I did my PhD in nursing, and uh, before that, I did my uh, undergrad, I worked on um, a mother-baby unit, uh, which, was, uh, which was a lot of fun. Um, and kind of all throughout kind of the undergraduate uh, nursing training and my time on the floor, I was really interested in kind of how research gets into practice and kind of how we use uh, studies to come to conclusions about like, ways we should treat uh, uh, babies or families. Um, and so that's why for my PhD, I wanted to go uh, in and do um, uh, um, a very like decision science focused uh, PhD. Um, it was actually like a health economics study uh, with like micro simulation and everything. Um, and so I just kind of, I like statistics as a way to just like have a structured way of looking at data and looking for patterns in data, and, um, coming up with some decision rules and then acting based on um, on what you find. So that's that's really drug. It's more of like a, I'm, I'm a very applied person, I guess. So uh, nobody's coming to me to help find the like really nifty way that this like nonlinear formula can actually be expressed in linear terms. That's not me, but um, I'm more of uh, how can we kind of approach this in a smart way and what are the different ways that this could work out and um, kind of thinking more at that, uh, that higher strategic level and more of like a translational level. Yeah. I mean, applications are really important, right? Especially when it comes to decision makings. Um, yeah. And I'm wondering, you mentioned you are doing health economics related job. Can you tell us a bit more about what you're doing currently? Yeah, so I work as a senior director of biostats at Eversana, which is a global uh, life sciences consultancy. So we work with pharmaceutical and medical device companies um, to help bring uh, products to market and then to help kind of uh, maximize their market share. Kind of, So we'd say we do a lot of everything after the trial the pivotal trial mostly. So we'll do a lot of post hoc analysis. We'll do some analyses to support um, 
uh, as like additional analyses to support like an uh, FDA or EMA submission. Um, but the group that I work in primarily is uh, is focused on this really small piece of the pie called uh, market access, which is where like in Canada, once you have your Health Canada approval, um, you then have to uh, create a submission to Cadith, which is a health technology assessment agency. And they look at the clinical effectiveness uh, and the cost effectiveness um, and a few other pieces to help make a recommendation to the provinces. Uh, all the provinces except for Quebec, Quebec has their own, um, but uh, to make a recommendation to the, whether the provinces should list uh, therapy or not. And so um, we do a lot of the statistical support for that. And then we also have a team that does a lot of the health economics. And then I'm kind of in the middle. So I'm a lot of the like, how do we take the results of the meta-analysis or the indirect treatment comparison or like the uh, like IPTW analysis or whatever the like real world data and turn that into a way that the, the modelers can use it um, to kind of tell the story that they need to tell. I see, that's interesting. So um, what would you say that the biostatistician's role that is in this kind of, um, I guess, industry? Yeah, so it's pretty mixed, and I think it's kind of specializing in some ways. Um, so I am uh, maybe in some ways a dying breed because I mm -hmm. kind of have uh, my fingers in everything. I'm uh, considered more of like a generalist. So I do the strategic piece. I help with the, like the design. I still actually do a ton of the coding on the newest stuff. I do a ton of coding adaptations. So like a new paper comes out. This is a neat method that applies to our use case. So mm -hmm. I would do a lot of the adaptation of that. Um, and then I would kind of be supporting, uh, I just recently was supporting like a regulatory submission. I've done some support of our real world data stuff. Um, so I kind of do a little bit of everything, um, but I'd say generally um, we would have people mostly focus on one of two areas, I'd say. So they're either kind of like uh, doing a lot of uh, what we would call like real world evidence generation or real, real world data, which is really just um, uh, like electronic health records and claims based analyses. Uh, so like routinely uh, captured data for the most part. Uh, so a lot of people doing uh, study design and analysis around that. Um, and, uh, and then we'd have the people that are doing more of the traditional market access, which is primarily like uh, network meta-analysis and um, different ways of uh, combining aggregate data, like study level data and uh, individual participant data, but focusing mostly on trials. Um, I'd say we kind of have like a third stream that's a little bit more like data science-y I'd say. So like uh, some of the work that we're doing there, for example, is like um, we have a really interesting project in uh, a rare disease um, where we don't have a lot of data on, we don't have a lot of patients. And so we can't do like a lot of predictive modeling in terms of like, does like X predict Y or time to event or anything like that. But we do have a lot of like serial measurements of different uh, biomarkers. And so we're kind of looking at, can we um, use the bits of the data where we have a lot of it, which is these repeated measures to start kind of looking at maybe different phenotypes of trends in these biomarkers and then say, okay, these are the people that need to be treated more quickly. And these are the people that kind of um, could be deprioritized. Or maybe it could be the opposite. It could be like these people with these kind of more like lazy trends end up going untreated for longer. And so there's actually more uh, damage there. And so it might be an important uh, subpopulation that needs to be treated quickly. So that's kind of, that's like all like, that's more like longitudinal clustering, clustering and like K-mean stuff. And so I would kind of put that more into 
just a more data science-y type area. Um, and same with like, we have some like, uh, like web-based tools with Shiny that are, I'd say that's kind of more within like that toolbox. So um, taking an analysis and then making it so like a client can fiddle with the, um, the uh, inclusion exclusion or some like sensitivities, stuff like that. So. I see, that's really interesting. Uh, I'm wondering for you yourself personally, which out of these three, which is your favorite part to work on? Uh, I really love still like the getting everything into the health economic model. So I'm kind of at the like end of the pipeline of um, I, I, I still like like the most working on those projects because um, I just it's kind of fun to take it's essentially like a gigantic multivariate analysis that you're reducing down to um, putting through this gigantic loss function and then saying like what is the life years gained or the, uh, the quality adjusted life years and kind of what is what are the costs associated with that. And so it's a lot of fun to kind of build these things um, and make what is um, really just like a gigantic Frankenstein machine. Uh, I see. Make lots of like fun stuff where it's like, oh, like if I look at this, like, it's like, oh, uh, like I have survival data. So I might have hazard ratios from a model. Uh, mm -hmm. I might have another study where all I have is like counts and exposure time. Um, and so just like, it's fun to be like, okay, well, yeah, if I actually just, uh, do like a like complementary log lock transformation, do a model on these, then I can combine my hazard ratios from that and my hazard ratios mm -hmm. from the rest. And now I have this kind of neat multi-parameter evidence synthesis model. It's, um, so it's kind of like puzzle putting together mm -hmm. puzzle pieces and I really like that piece. I see. And you did mention micro simulations when it comes to health economics. I'm wondering, what do you think is like the biggest challenges for micro simulation? Mm. So I'd say the biggest challenge right now is that uh, prepare to be shocked if you are not like deep within health economics. Mm -hmm. But uh, I would say, I think almost, I would say 100% actually maybe of submissions to CADIT um, with these health economic models that uh, there'll be like a big mix, right? So there's like cohort, like Markov cohort models, then there's micro simulation models um, and discrete event simulation, which is kind of like a super fancy micro simulation in a way, um, are all developed in Excel. Oh, what? Really? <laughs> yeah, the whole thing. Every, every, the whole micro simulation, everything about it is all written in Excel for the most part with minimal VBA. Uh, like there's like VBA for the iterations, but a lot of it has yeah. to be in order to be transparent and to meet like the requirements. So these things, you have this model that takes like, if you were, I think we have a, a poster going into is for, uh, uh, that we're waiting here if it got accepted or not, but, um, where we actually said, okay, like if you wanted to have like plus or minus 5% precision on like net monetary benefit for this micro simulation model. And the, the base case for CADIF is always that you have to um, uh, account for the uncertainty in all your parameters that go in. So your treatment effectiveness, they call it like a probabilistic sensitivity analysis. That's the base case. So essentially you're like replicating your micro simulation model like K times. Um, and so we did this whole piece. It was like, okay, here's a real micro simulation model that we have that's, uh, that's, uh, has been submitted in the past, be submitted in future, in, in future uh, submissions what is like the optimal balance of like the size of the micro simulation population and the size of the PSA population, like those mm -hmm. two levels of uncertainty. And then how long would it take to run? And it's basically like, uh, it was like two years or something like that. Um, oh my God, that's insane. <laughs> so I'd say the, the biggest challenge is 
like a structural one in some ways um, mm -hmm. that it's about like at the end of the day, this is going into Excel. So uh, at least right now, I think there's some movement towards like other softwares. So R is probably the closest one to uh, people doing more submissions in. Um, but then like once you open up the door to R, it's like there's people that uh, code these in uh, like Java, not JavaScript, but Java. There's people that uh, will code these in um, or have components of it written in C++, uh, right? Because then that's just like way faster. Um, mm -hmm. Now there's like Julia, which is like another statistical programming language that's uh, like much, much faster than R and Python even. So um, yeah, I think in the short term, it's uh, the biggest challenge with the micro simulation models is really deciding when you need one and coming up with a clever way to make it as fast as possible with like the limitations that you have. Mm -hmm. I see. Um, so when you're talking about coding, you're mainly talking about coding VBA. That would be like on the, the health tech side. The biostatisticians don't do any VBA. We work exclusively in R, uh, mm -hmm. really. We have some, we do keep like some SAS and state licenses because every once in a while you need to like reproduce an analysis that was submitted for regulatory and some of the, uh, some of the algorithms are slightly different between R and SAS. And so you have to kind of go down the route to figure out, uh, like, am I really getting a different result or if, have I just like not understood some data processing piece and that's what's coming through. Oh, I see. Uh, oh, that's very that, interesting. Like FAST and R have like uh, different default like uh, mm -hmm. methods for like quantile estimation. So right. like even something like making a summary table, it'll be different mm -hmm. slightly or it can be slightly different and it all can come down to the software. So I see. Uh, I guess when it comes to regulation, like with submission, SAS is usually used in the pharma industry. So would you say, what would you say is the standard requirement when you do health economic related submissions? Uh, so for health economic submissions, it's like really like the kind of like my core software set that I use when I'm supporting that from like the statistical set uh, mindset is um, R and it could be any program, but R, because that's what we all work in. Um, and Winbugs or JAGS. Uh, so a lot of the a lot of the uh, HTA, like health tech submissions, are the synthesis portion will be um, from a Bayesian uh, standpoint for the most part. Um, so having some like Winbugs, JAGS experience is always really good. Um, and other than that, that seems to be where people are more or less coalescing. There are some like Stata shops out there, but. But yeah, I'd say like the industry statisticians mostly work in SAS still. There's some that are moving to R. So I think GSK and Roche both seem to be doing a lot of stuff with um, the folks at what used to be our studio. Now yes, positive. sounds like so. Yeah. Um, you mentioned you work on um, a lot of these are done in the Bayesian framework. I'm wondering why, it, like, does it have to be done using the Bayesian framework or is it just because it's like very flexible? It's, I think it's mostly because it's very flexible. So like, uh, like I think it's a bit of like a momentum thing. So when the very first, so like pretty much every CATA submission uh, or every like HDA submission or like health tech for like from a market access viewpoint will be in an area where there's like many different uh, comparators and you need to have one analysis that accounts for like the correlation and all of them so that you get a, like a single consistent comparative effectiveness assessment and everything kind of like, uh, like all the uncertainty is properly accounted for as you go through. 
And so the way that we do that from like the efficacy endpoint standpoint is with uh, network meta-analysis, which is just a meta-analysis that's generalized to multiple comparators. Um, and all of the original code for that was written in bugs because um, if you can write down the math for something, you can usually write down the bugs model for it, which is what's like what makes it so fun um, and so great and so like easy to work with and flexible, like you mentioned. Um, and then, so now there are frequentist alternatives, but like the, it's kind of like the same thing with like SAS and industry. Like all of our code is based on the bugs code. Mm. All the bits and pieces that are like modular that we reuse over projects are all written, assuming that like the output is coming from like a bugs model that we controlled every aspect of it. So we know what the names are for things. And so it's a little bit of like, sorry. <laughs> I see, but um, even I guess, so the computation, for example, the compet improvement on the computational efficiency using uh, sorry, frequentist methods is not um, like they don't really take into consideration because everything is yeah, so here's the thing. Um, so for the computation piece, yeah, like you'd be right. Like if you were actually refitting the model every time, then it would make way more sense to do like to use like a frequentist piece because the it's like more or less inst instantaneous. Mm -hmm. um, but what the Excel models are actually using is one of two things. So for the uncertainty and the comparative effectiveness piece, so like the, the treatment effects or odd ratios or hazard ratios or uh, like absolute responses, however, whatever ends up getting put in uh, to the model, mm -hmm. uh, that comes in one of two ways. Either we give them the actual, like all the posterior samples from bugs and then they just sample one row at a time. Right, and that's kind of nice because then there's no distributional assumptions. They don't need to say like mm -hmm. all these parameters are multivariate normal or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, or the other option, you can do it in either a frequentist or a Bayesian way, is to uh, give them all of the treatment effects and the variance covariance matrix uh, for them, and then they will do like a hand-coded uh, Kolesky decomp uh, in Excel mm -hmm. to sample from that multivariate normal. Um, so either way, like the at the end of the day, the, the health tech model is Bayesian in a way. It gets a, it's basically like an MCMC type thing for the, mm -hmm. uh, for the parameter uncertainty. Um, so no matter what, even if, however we fit the, the, the comparative effectiveness portion of the model, um, the, the bottleneck is always on the, the health tech side. Oh, I see. Um, I'm wondering, because there are programs in universities called uh, called health economics, right? How is that differentiated from like by what biostatisticians are doing in terms of health economics? Um, so I would say like our the people that I work with that have done like health economics degrees are usually focused on like actually like doing like the the more standard approaches to everything, and then like their fancy bits are around like thinking about how to build like their, whether this is a partition survival model or whether they're going to do this as like a continuous time Markov or whether they're going to do it with like tunnel states, like they end up being really strong there and really strong in the logic and like understanding like um, where all the different bits and pieces should come from. Whereas the biostats people, when they get involved in the health tech, it's usually because there's some like complex piece, like complex input that's not like easy to find. And so they're extending it in some way. Uh, so they're mm -hmm. doing like a, uh, maybe a, uh, fitting a slightly more complex model or they're changing, like, like rewriting one bus code, et cetera. But, um, 
They can overlap quite a bit. I'd say the one thing that I love about uh, about industry and consulting is at the end of the day, it's just like, as long as you can do the work, that's all anyone cares about. Um, mm. So the credentials are useful for like getting you in the door and they're useful for giving you the tool set that you, that you work from and, and like a, a theoretical framework that you work from and like how you have learned to approach these problems. Mm. But then from that point forward, it's just like, we need someone who can figure out how to get this estimate that we need for the model. And if it's a biostatistician who can figure it out, then that's great. But if it's like someone who did like an M biotech who mm -hmm. can figure it out because they found like some paper from the seventies that had this like neat application and they're like, oh, yeah, all I have to do is like apply this formula and everyone's done it. And yeah, it's an approximation, but it's also a better approximation than nothing. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I'd say like, there's no clear, delineation in the way that there might be um, in like real like pharma industry where you have like statistical programmers mm -hmm. and statisticians and the statisticians have like a regulatory like role um, and they're more they're not really doing coding for the most part um, they're really more just like planning writing and interpreting mm -hmm. um, and like doing the final QC and sign off and all that sort of stuff but right. more of a everyone does whatever does we, we try to keep people kind of within their uh, specialty, but at the same time, it's um, whoever can get the, the job done at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I guess speaking of credentials um, for students or people who want to switch careers, who want to um, do something that's related to what you're doing now, what are some advice that you can, you want to give them or what do you wish that you knew when you first started this uh, whole gig? <laughs> Um, I'd say like understanding, like really understanding trial design and trials has been like a thing that like has been a huge help to me. So I did uh, a lot of work in clinical trials. I still uh, work on some like um, national clinical trial work in Canada anyways. Um, and I like that, I can always go back to like um, understanding so much about industry and so much about evidence and where things need to come from because everything I learned from the trial piece. Mm -hmm. So like really having a good understanding of like experimental design, um, I find is like a bit of a superpower. And there's not, there's a lot of people who are really good at like doing the analysis once the design is made, but like really mm -hmm. understanding the design and like, what if I need to figure out like, like this slightly different version of this research question, like how does the design have to change? Like those are the things that stump people I find. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the other big thing is just like, uh, I don't know if it's like a valid statistical concept anymore because that field seems to kind of throw everything away every 20 years. But um, when I was going through my, uh, my uh, undergrad, there was like this concept of grit that was maybe like Angela Duckworth, I think when I was in person doing it, she might still be doing research. And it was just the ability to like continually plug through even when you are in this like overwhelming uncomfortable situation like being stretched beyond your uh, knowledge and really having to like persevere and grow and find things like the people who have that I think are the people who I see succeed a lot mm -hmm. uh, I'd say that the hardest thing about consulting work is that uh for as much as some aspects of the job become modular, like every project is very, very um, 
different and new and you could be working in um, oncology today and you could be working in some rare disease tomorrow mm-hmm. and the expectation is that you're going to be able to kind of get up to date on the medical side um, and like the biology and everything mm-hmm. and also kind of everything that's been done from like a statistic standpoint uh, on that and so that can throw people a lot so you don't really have like templates that you can just do over and over and over again mm-hmm. uh, like some like CRO type work you end up more just like working in the same area over and over again. Um, and you can kind of build up, like you really become comfortable. Um, but consulting, I think, is defined by being uncomfortable. That's really good advice, I guess. You have to like, you have to like really like that. Uh, right. It's probably <laughs> applicable for anything that you want to succeed in to be <laughs> constantly grow. But I guess when you talk about consultancy, um, is this statistical consultancy, does it cross any path with, like the regular consultancy when you face the clients? Uh, yeah, so we kind of have two, uh, like two general teams, people that are more technical that uh, do like minimal client facing and then people um, like myself who are kind of in the middle. Um, mm-hmm. I would, uh, so I'm responsible for like, business development. I do like a lot of contracting work. I do a lot of um, sales work. I do mm-hmm. like presentation to clients. I consult with clients in terms of like, what is your problem and how can we help you solve it? Um, presenting results and troubleshooting results and kind of responding to things live. And we do a lot of training and stuff like that as well uh, for clients primarily. Mm-hmm. So those are the two like mainstreams, I'd say. Um, the technical people will still be client facing, like they'll still present results at times, but um, generally it's kind of like uh, uh, the results are more or less kind of passed through a chain, I'd say. Yeah, I see. Um, does ever suddenly mostly face a Canadian clients or is it the whole North America or even just global? Yeah, so Eversana, the company is like huge. So I'm only talking about like, so there's like Eversana, this gigantic, uh, like there's like a whole data analytics team that we haven't talked about at all. Um, it's all like claims and like market research and a lot of EHR and like really interesting things that they're doing that's kind of outside of our group. Um, and then I'm in this group called professional services. And then within that group, you come even smaller, uh, and our, uh, like our, our group is value and evidence and we do like a lot of market access. Mm-hmm. So we work with people globally. Um, I'd say like a pretty good mix of Canada, U S UK. I've done some, um, uh, APAC, uh, work. So like Australia and Asia, um, uh, for market access support um, and like some European, uh, some small like German and French uh, stuff as well, Italian, Spain. Um, so we kind of work everywhere. And then kind of Everson as a whole has like offices in India, uh, offices in Europe, offices in the US and Canada. Um, and so it's really kind of a, like it really is a, a global consultancy on the, on the huge scale. And then even on our small scale, it's still kind of global, but um, I'd say most of the people in our group are based in Canada. I see. In our group, yeah. So there's about 115 of us now, I think. Um, That's a so lot. I'm in Burlington, and then I'm in Halifax, and there's a few people up in Sydney, Nova Scotia. I see. Do you guys do you guys get to travel a lot um, to talk to clients? Uh there is the uh, there is the option to travel a lot. A lot of people have opted not to travel much, um, especially like there was a pretty big change pre-post-COVID, um, mm. 
for sure. There's a lot more travel early, but like um, we'll send uh, like at least a couple people to conferences. Uh, so all the big bigger conferences we we'll go to. So we'll go to the Cata Symposium. That'll be in Ottawa this year in May. Um, is for um, which this year is in Boston. I think also in May. Um, and uh, I think we sent a we sent a team a group to Ispor Europe. So that was in um, uh, why am I blanking? I was in Europe this year. Um, I can't remember exactly where. Uh, I see. So mainly the traveling right now is to the conferences. Yeah, mostly the conferences. We used to do some client stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like a couple of my friends. Uh, uh, that I work with like went and like presented to offices in like the U.S. mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to like a, a product launch uh, in um, uh, in Denmark once. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah. I see uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so it's neat if you if you like travel, I'd say it's not as much travel as like management consulting mm-hmm. would be for sure. <laughs> that's like defined by travel, mm-hmm. uh, but there is like the ability to get some anyways i see i guess it's a really good combination of like the technical things statisticians do and then some bit of travel to either clients or conferences sounds really cool yeah yeah um so how do you think this uh industry will evolve in the coming years compared to i guess we're not talking about pharmaceutical company uh pharmaceutical industry but mainly just the consultancy industry Mm -hmm. yeah i'd say um it's like, hmm. I don't think of the major ways. So, I mean, like, from a day-to-day work standpoint, I think it's pretty clear that uh, the big, large language models are going to probably change a lot of people's workflows. Um, so, like, uh, ChatGPT, very famous, everyone's talking about it right now. There's, uh, like, Google Bard. Um, those are only continue to grow and, like, their ability to take something like a lot, like something that a lot of statisticians struggle with, for example, um, or at least the ones that I've worked with, is taking the very specific estimate that you are providing uh, uh, an estimate for, um, and research question and the model you did it, and then explain it to a room of people that is like a mix of executives, non-technical people. Right but still have enough of the technical piece so the technical people in the audience don't think that you mm-hmm. have like done a bad job. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, it's pretty undeniable that uh, like ChatGPT can take something that's very technical and turn it into something that's a lot better. It's a really good first pass at something for a lay audience. And so mm-hmm. I think um, things like that are gonna become pretty integrated in workflows. Um, Interesting. Does so- a good job of like creating structure for different types of uh, reports. Mm-hmm. Um, for like doing some grammar checking for um, for helping to like think through in some ways, it can be better than, uh, than the internet for finding like a really specific, mm-hmm. like you need to know like in R, how can I uh, take this multivariate distribution where I have uh, my variance covariance matrix and a vector mm-hmm. of means, and I want to express it in terms of like a series of conditional distributions. Like how can I do that? Right. Um, can be really difficult to find a straight answer for that like mm-hmm. on Stack Exchange uh, or like to That's find true. the right textbook that has like what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. But uh, ChatGPT can get you moving and get you in the right direction. And it's not always going to give you the right answer, but um, mm-hmm. it'll get you kind of uh, understanding where you need to look next, I find. So I think 
I think that's really going to change the way that people approach a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's I guess be a companion when you're stuck coding something like, uh, I mean, I've used it, used it to be like, how can I make this for loop more efficient? How can I make this like uh, this like mapping function more efficient? Mm -hmm. uh, and it can give you some uh, some neat ideas and some estimates on like what the time savings would be. Uh, and so it's kind of cool. Um, I think it will. I think that'll end up changing. I don't think it's going to replace anybody. I don't think it's going to do a lot of our work for us, but um, I think it's going to be a, a non-judgmental companion to to ask some questions to that you might be stuck on. Um, I think it's right. useful. So I guess it's eventually helping with all of the industries in the world. And I guess, especially in the healthcare consultancy, will help more with the communication side of it and the resource gathering. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely like on the communication and um, just relieving some of the cognitive load. Like one of the things that I find a lot of, uh, so like we do everything, right? So like when like our statisticians are also like writing SAPs and they're contributing to reports and um, they're making slides and everything else. And I find that like we can be really efficient on the analysis side, but sometimes we'll get stuck on like uh, the background for uh, That's true. Area. Um, and you can just like throw a few abstracts of papers together, say like get a background for this disease area, and then you have a starting piece that you can then edit and build out and uh, like go and like reference check and everything else. But at least you've like taken that cognitive load of like, what's the first thing I need to talk about about this disease? <laughs> a lot of people just like freeze at their keyboard. That's uh, so relatable. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel when I'm writing my first manuscript. I had no <laughs> idea what I should put in the paper. But yeah, that sounds interesting. And yeah. I guess thank you for all the advice and information I share. And we'll conclude this podcast episode by th this question. So what is one question that you wish I asked and how would you have answered it? Oh, um... Or just anything that I haven't asked about and you want to share about uh, your work or your insights yeah i guess maybe um would have been good to to talk a little bit about like um what things are kind of not so great about the job sometimes i i, uh, I think i touched on some of the things that maybe that people don't uh that that people typically don't like so like that like really being uncomfortable and always really having to be ready to think on your feet and mm -hmm. like, every project is just different enough that you are, feel like you're starting over a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, but I guess the only other thing like someone coming into consulting would probably have to be prepared for is like, and it kind of gets tied into that, um, is that there isn't quite as much like, especially if you're coming from an academic, there's not so much like formal training where it's like you're going to go to a workshop to learn how to do this analysis mm -hmm. um, or like you're going to go and do like a two-day like causal inference workshop. Um, for the most part, it's going to be like, here are the key resources. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to get like 80% of the way there. And you need to get there in like, uh, within a time frame that like works for the deliverables of the project. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think something that would be great would be finding a way to, I think back when we were all I mean, I was always remote, but like, I think when people were uh, working more like in an office, you'd have a lot of these like informal conversations and trainings and things um, and people kind of mentoring you on the spot, like if you get stuck. I think we've 
struggle to find a way to replace that sort of thing. And I find that people are now getting a little bit more stuck on the training piece. Mm -hmm. And so trying to find a solution to that, I don't know what it is at the moment, but um, yeah, I'd say the the biggest challenge for, for people to watch out for is like, if you don't like to really teach yourself and learn kind of on the fly and um, be pointed in the right direction and kind of say like, that's where we need to go over there. And then we need you to help us find how to get there. Um, then that can, people can really struggle. I see. That's a really good point to think about. So, yeah, does it sometimes bring stress to work? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't find that stressful. I like that. I, I have always <laughs> I liked that. I, I The like, mindset. I like self-taught myself everything. Uh, mm. uh, like my, 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 all my stats training, everything was all um, just within like self-directed courses primarily my PhD um, mm -hmm. so like I kind of grew up in that so I get it but a lot of people do not like that at all they find it very right. stressful yeah <laughs> so audience for who for whom that want to be in this industry eventually make sure to be prepared mentally <laughs> and yeah I guess that's all my questions for today and thank you for joining us on this episode for a biostatistics podcast and maybe we'll invite you back some other time to talk about some more uh, new projects that you work on yeah, absolutely. That'd be a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's good to uh, have to think of um, all these things instead of just doing all the time. So no, thank you. Conversation. I'll see you. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you in the next episode.